And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Jackinetti. I would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. I hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at the miniseries Godzilla in Hell from IDW Comics. Quite a uh, unique and interesting comics miniseries it was. And I'm glad you're joining us today. We're going to be taking a look at the next two episodes of the classic Tokusatsu Kyodai Hero Show Ultraman. Episodes 24 and 25 featuring not one, not two, not three, but four monsters altogether. And we will get to those episodes uh, in very short order. But first, a little bit of news. So, Ultra Galaxy Fight, The Ultimate Conspiracy, which debuts on November 22nd on Subaraya Productions' YouTube. The toys, the first wave of toys, have been announced, and these are uh, Spark Doll-sized small vinyl toys, as has been the norm uh, for the most part for the toy releases since Ultraman Ginga. And the four that have been announced and shown so far are Spark Doll-sized vinyls of Ultraman Great, Ultraman Powered, Ultraman Jonius, and Ultraman Trigar, the early form. Now, these are uh, apparently going to be released on December 26th. So, sorry, no, uh, Santa's not going to bring you these for Christmas. And they are listed at a price of 660 yen, currently about $6.26. Hat tip to Sci-Fi Japan for uh, for the info on these. I have quite a few Spark Doll and uh, similar sized Ultraman toys. And to get those, especially great and powered, and even Jonius. Uh, Trigar, that, the early form, that, that's pretty interesting, but, you know, I have, between Ultra Act and full size vinyls, I have all of the original, the Showa Ultra Brothers, and then Great Empowered. And I want to say I have that for the smaller size too, so I may have to pick up Great Empowered and Jonius, uh, just to, to round that out. Very neat. Now, from, uh, our good friends at SRS Cinema, Rago, King of the Sea Monsters and Raiga, God of the Monsters, are being released on a double feature Blu-ray disc. Uh, so the, the suggested retail price for this is $19.95. I'm sure you could find it cheaper than that if you poke around Amazon or some other sellers. So if you missed out the first time, or if you uh, want to upgrade to Blu-ray from DVD, this is a good opportunity to it. Hat tip to my brother Jason who passed this one along. I have both of these on DVD. I don't think I'm going to be upgrading to the Blu-ray, but if I hadn't gotten the DVDs, I probably would. I still need to watch Raiga. Uh, I, I, you remember we covered Rago um, on an episode on this uh, on this very podcast, but I thought Rago was, was pretty good. You know, again, given its origins as an independent film, I've heard a lot of mixed things about Raiga, uh, so I'll be very interested to see that and talk about it here on the show. Now, also from SRS Cinema, I've started to see reports of shipping notices for Howl from Beyond the Fog. Uh, I'm very eager to get a hold of this one. You'll recall that this is the combination of tokusatsu and puppetry uh, that was uh, that was put out 
uh, last year, I guess, and is now getting a release here in, uh, in the West, thanks to SRS Cinema. Very eager again to talk about this one on the show. Uh, I have not gotten my notice yet. I'm, I'm hoping <laughs> that to get it shortly, because uh, I've got a couple other films in that um, or discs in that in that uh, order that I've got coming from SRS. All stuff that that we'll probably be able to talk about here on the show as well. So, uh, one last bit of movie news. This is kind of tangentially related to Earth Destruction Directive. The film Monster Hunter, which is of course the film adaptation of the Vega mega popular video game series sorta it's uh, it, it looks a little unusual but uh, let me let me get on with it now that this of course stars uh, Mila Jovovich will be getting a theatrical release here in the states on Christmas Day now this is the interesting part this announcement coming out just yesterday as uh, as I'm recording this it will be competing against the other big film that's being getting a theatrical release on Christmas Day, Wonder Woman 84. Uh, now, the deal with Wonder Woman 84 is that it's also going to be streaming on HBO Max, whereas Monster Hunter does not appear to have a streaming release. At least there was nothing that was uh, indicated in any of the press releases that I saw for it. Uh, now, I own a couple of Monster Hunter games. I have Freedom for the PSP and uh, Monster Hunter 4 Ultimate for the 3DS, but I've really not played them much. I started playing Freedom right at the time that my PSP developed a problem and it couldn't read uh, the the SD card anymore, so I, I couldn't continue and I simply haven't played uh, uh, 4 Ultimate. But Monster Hunter, I do have to applaud. There, there's a lot of a lot of fans of this game. Obviously, it's very popular worldwide, and it's it puts monsters. It's right there in the title and puts monsters um, front and center for the franchise. So I do like that. In fact, we even have had a couple of SH Monster Arts releases of some of the the bigger monsters from that series. So that, as I said, it's kind of tangentially ties in. Uh, as I said, the movie looks to be a big departure. It involves like a uh, like, a, like a real world military unit transported to the world of Monster Hunter. Uh, but I think that's a topic for a different podcast. I'm not really equipped to discuss the uh, the changes and, and what that means and, and, and how that relates to the Monster Hunter world. I'll leave that to people that know more about Monster Hunter. But just thought it's interesting. We are getting a, a, a big American monster movie in theaters in 2020. So I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, if you have any... Uh, news or notes or anything you'd like to to share, please go ahead and email them earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com and we will mention them on the show and even give credit. Uh, so I look forward to that. All right, we're going to take a really quick break and we'll be right back to get into first of two episodes of Ultraman here on Earth Destruction Directive. Here at Quarks, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. And for Starfleet, one of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander. The journey you have always been destined to take. Sensors are not functioning. We've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there? Shields up. <laughs> Damage report. Battle stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the prophets. A Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation with Sean Engel and Andrew Leyland. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. 
Alright, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman, episode 24, the Undersea Science Center, aired on December 25th, 1966 on TBS. That's the Tokyo Broadcasting System. Now that comes from ultra.wikia.com. Uh, Christmas not is a little bit different in, uh, in Japan than it is in the U.S., so I believe that this episode probably did air on Christmas Day. Our director is Toshiro Ijima. Uh, he directed episodes such as Shooting Invaders and Science Patrol into Space, which are both Balton episodes, and he does several others. I think he has seven total for the series. The writer is Keisuke Fujikawa, who wrote episodes such as Cry of the Mummy and Passport to Infinity. And the special effects are by Koichi Takano, and the episode is subtitled The Appearance of Abyssal Monster Gubila. And our summary is by me, and goes a little something like this. To inaugurate the opening of the Undersea Science Center, Captain Muramatsu, Fuji, and Hoshino escort the president of the Science Center and a young girl, Jenny, to be the first visitors. When shuttling them over in the S-25 submarine, the lifeline to the Undersea Science Center is damaged, stranding the captain, Hoshino, and the civilians. To make matters worse, the center's dock is leaking and air is limited. Convinced that she is to blame for the damage, Fuji and the rest of the Science Patrol stage a daring rescue. Using the S-25 and the research submarine Tortoise, they plan to cut through the hull of the center and make the rescue. But the monster Gubila, cause of the damage, has other ideas. While Ide and Fuji attempt the rescue, Hayata and Arashi hold off the monster. When Arashi is knocked out, Hayata changes to Ultraman and battles Gubila. Using his drill horn, Gubila burrows to the surface, and Ultraman gives chase. Meanwhile, Fuji is able to rescue the trapped visitors, avoiding the battle of the two giants. Back on land, said battle still rages. Gubila is able to catch the Ultra Slash on his drill and throw it back. But Ultraman then chops off Gubila's horn. Wounded, Gubila falls before the specium beam, and the day is saved. Definitely an action-packed episode of Ultraman this time out, uh, featuring a, a pretty, a pr- fairly popular monster for a guy that's only appeared a few times. I, I, I see Gobila pop up every now and again, I think because of his kind of unique look, but we'll talk about it here in the notes. So, uh, we right off the front, we get to see the S-25 submarine, one of my favorite pieces of, uh, of hardware for the Science Patrol. We don't get to see the submarine all that often, so it is neat every time it shows up. I do like that clearly. S-25 is from the same, you know, design thought, design school, if you will, uh, as the Jet VTOL. They look very similar, but clearly it's the, you know, the undersea version of it. And there's something kind of wonderfully tokusatsu about an undersea vehicle for a, a team like the Science Patrol. It's like every time there's a, a water-based vehicle and like a Super Sentai group that, you know, merges into the big mecha. You know, we have an, a nation that's an island. You know, a water vessel is always quite important, and you definitely need it. Uh, in the, uh, I'm on, on S25, and then also we see this in the Science Center, Hoshino and Jenny are paired together, which makes sense. Jenny is younger than Hoshino. I'd say she's probably about maybe seven or eight years old. And Oshino, of course, is a little bit older, but, you know, when, when things are um, not going so well, he, you know, he amuses her and entertains her to keep her calm, which I thought was a, a nice touch. Also, I do like that that they have the two kids' characters together. And in this case, having Hoshino on the mission does make sense. Uh, this is not 
they're investigating something. This is them there as a uh, you know an honor guard, so to speak. And so it would make sense to have Hoshino there, especially since there's going to be a younger uh, individual with them as well. So I thought that was well used. You know, sometimes Hoshino gets a bum rap. Uh, I think sometimes uh, they they have find a good spot for him, and this is certainly one of them. Uh, <laughs> as they're on the S25 uh, going over to the science center, the president is smoking. He's smoking on the S25 because it's 1966 and you just smoke on a thing like this. What's funny is that this actually will come up a little bit later when they are on the center and they are stuck there. He starts smoking again and the captain chides him and says, don't waste your oxygen with that. Don't, you know, don't smoke. And so I do like that, that, you know, yes, it is still the sixties and yes, we're allowed to smoke, but you know, maybe, you know, pick your pick when you want to light up. Don't always just assume you can do it. I thought that was a, a nice touch. As S-25 is making its way over to the Undersea Science Center, we uh, see all the marine life that are uh, outside the windows. And these, uh, this is accomplished, as this was often done in the, uh, back in the day, with um, uh, footage of aquariums. So shot through aquarium tanks, and it's just uh, cut so that it looks like they're looking out the windows and the portholes of S-25. So you get to see various undersea life frolicking around, um, you know, turtles and other fish. So very, very uh, kind of charming in the way that it's done because this is simply how this was done for a long time you know that and any time that something was undersea like that that's how you'd show the flora and fauna was uh you typically with aquarium footage so i like that they keep that tradition going we do get to see a little bit of gubila he pops up to drill his way out of the uh, underground in order to break the lifeline so we do see right away the ability of his uh, his drill gubila for all intents and purposes it looks like a narwhal he's kind of kind of a a, a rounded body and uh, you know but a, but a, like a whale sort of face and head and then he has instead of a a long tooth the narwhal is often that's often called a horn it's actually a tooth that's on their head instead of having the tooth he's got a drill in its place and uh you know typical kind of undersea monster in that he's kind of awkward on land but uh moves pretty quickly zooms around uh underground or underwater i should say because of uh, you know he's a marine life form his coloring is also kind of interesting reminds me a bit of an angelfish um if you remember the character of gill from finding nemo he was an angelfish so kind of the black and white kind of kind of look to him very uh is it not not one of the most popular monsters but certainly not a forgotten one either Gubila does pop up now and again, and uh, he is uh, an interesting enough one. I think the connection to a narwhal, which is an interesting enough creature in and of itself, is, uh, is, is part of what makes him so memorable. Now, once they get to the center, we and even a little bit before that, we do get some nice model and set work. So we do have a, a new model here that it is the whole Undersea Science Center itself, and we see the S-25 and later Tortoise interact with this model, which is, is very nice, and obviously it's set in a craggy underwater setting. So I did, this was nice, and I always nice to see some new model work and some creative stuff. It's not just a, another village or another city set. So I thought that was really nice. And it certainly, um, you know, is a science fiction setting, right? The Undersea uh, Science Center. I liked that. Now, on the center itself, it's hard to tell because certain parts of the center clearly are an industrial location that they're filming in. Uh, because there's, there's pipes running everywhere and, and uh, ladders and manways and stuff. So that's clearly an industrial center, a factory of some kind that they're filming in. But there are other parts that look like sets, like the control center. And there's a place where we're all, you know, basically they have a ready room, for lack of a better term. So I, I do like that. It, it really does make the 
idea of the underwater science center, undersea science center, seem like a real place. You know, using the different, uh, you know, the different techniques, using uh, set and using location and using models, really does sell the idea that this is a real place and the people are really there. So I thought that was was well done. And you know, again, uh, you know, the thing about an industrial setting like that is that a lot of people, especially kids, are not going to have seen the inside of a factory. You know, and see all the utilities and the pipe rack and everything. So they don't necessarily make that connection. They just know that it, it looks mechanical, right? So I thought that was uh, I thought that was a good touch and good use of resources. Uh, Fuji is convinced that she is the reason that the pipeline, the lifeline, is damaged, and she she beats herself up for it. Actually, she says, "Oh, because of my careless steering, I've I've trapped them," and it's. It's kind of interesting that no one ever really dissuades her from this. Uh, I mean, once Gubila shows up, it's kind of understood that that's the problem, but no one ever says, you know, look, Fuji, you didn't do anything wrong. But it does, again, speak to Fuji as that she is uh, a part of the team, and she always is on missions and, and what have you, but I think she still feels the need to prove herself, which, again, makes sense. And is it's a little kind of forward-looking and progressive. Uh, Subarai was not always as progressive as, say, Toho was in their depiction of women, but I've I've liked seeing Fuji and seeing her, uh, you know, for the most part, her ability to to be on her own and and make decisions. Even here, where she feels the brunt on, of responsibility, but in actuality, she actually didn't do anything. It was Gubila that caused the damage, enough Fuji. The other new model we get this episode is the tortoise, and. Seeing the tortoise and S25 next to each other is, is quite nice because it really does highlight the difference between the Science Patrol, which is sort of a military organization, you know, an, uh, uh, you know, kind of that weird gray area like the Federation, and then a pure research vessel. Uh, tortoise looks like, you know, anytime you've watched, um, you know, television programs or read magazine articles about undersea scientific research vessels, that's this is the kind of look they have. It's nice and rounded. It doesn't look very threatening. It looks like it's got room inside and for for crew and equipment. So I do like that, and I like that it doesn't move as fast as S twenty five. You can see S twenty five moves a bit faster than it in the water, and that makes perfect sense. So I did like that. Again, it's only on screen for a few minutes. It's mainly there again to to facilitate the rescue and to, to get Ide and Fuji over to the Science Center, but I really like it. It's a nice little mechanical mecha design. Now, while they are stuck in the uh, Underwater Science Center, uh, the captain and Hoshino and the two civilians play cards. And they're not clearly clear what kind of game they're playing. There's a bunch of cards on the table, but it's very clearly seen that they are Nintendo playing cards. And that really amused me when I saw that. So I had to look this up. So I'm on, this, this is the Nintendo.fandom.com. This is a Nintendo, um, like, wiki page. And it has this whole history of Nintendo that they've been manufacturing playing cards since 1902. And that the, it goes back to when the Japanese government had banned card games, which were introduced by the Portuguese uh, because of their concerns about anything that, that, that the Christian missionaries from Europe had introduced to the country. And eventually, this ban would get lifted. And uh, Fuzuhiro Yamauchi, he was a young man, according to, I'm reading directly from the, the article here, uh, Yamauchi was a young man who played card games illegally in Japan. Upon hearing that the ban on his hobby had been lifted, he was overjoyed and soon opened his very own company where he could manufacture his own cards. That company was named Nintendo. Yamauchi's business flourished and his cards were among the most popular in the entire 
country. So, and they have a picture of it, and it's it's the Ace of Spades, and it's just got a Nintendo <laughs> name on the top. So, very, very neat to see that. It's a, uh, you know, back in 1966, the name Nintendo only really mostly meant playing cards. So, um, you know, it, it was natural, especially to have a Japanese brand of playing cards in a Japanese show set in Japan. But it really amused me looking at it now, obviously, what Nintendo would become in the 1980s and what they are now to look back and see their more humble roots as a, a playing card company. Later on, when the air starts running out in the Undersea Science Center, uh, Captain breaks out some oxygen tanks to help Jenny and uh, order to keep the, uh, you know, keep the rest of the crew going. And what's amazing here is that the captain is very quick to sacrifice himself and not take any oxygen and give the two civilians and Hoshino the three oxygen tanks. Uh, that's, and it's very, you know, it, it's, it's expected for the captain. He is obviously a heroic character and always thinks about the, 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 what's best for his team above himself, but it kind of brings it into sharp relief here when he is, like I said, more than willing to sacrifice himself and will listen to no argument, uh, as they, um, uh, as, as, as they, they do it. What's, uh, what's, what's aw- wonderful is that later on when, uh, Fuji, uh, actually uh, breaks into the science center. The first thing she does is run over to Cap and give him some of her oxygen. So I thought that was a, again, that, that speaks well to the Cap and to Fuji. Uh, speaking of Fuji and of her, uh, her rescue aboard S-25, we see Fuji in a wetsuit that she is going to make the rescue herself because, again, she feels responsible. A good character moment, but also Fuji in a wetsuit, which I'm sure is exciting for certain members of the audience. Uh, so we'll just move on from there. Now, once Gubila uh, appears and comes out fully, we get an undersea dogfight between Gubila and the S-25, which is which is quite nice. It's uh, directed and kind of blocked out the same way as a lot of the dogfights between the Jet VTOL and a flying monster, but being underwater, it's a little bit different. The uh, S-25 moves slightly differently. It doesn't swoop around in quite the same way, and obviously it fires uh, more uh, different, slightly different weapons, but it's still a nice touch and always good to get a, uh, you know, mecha versus kaiju scene in an Ultra series. Uh, now, Fuji, much like the captain, is willing to sacrifice herself because of her. She feels responsible for the entire predicament. So when the fight is going on between S-25 and Gubila, she's like, I need to get out there and go get down to the uh, uh, to, to the, the hull and, and get this hole, hole cut in the hull. And Ide's like, no, you can't do that. And she's like, no, I'm going to do it anyway. And so she clearly is willing to risk her own life to, even if she doesn't make it, to cut the hole t- so that Ide can rescue them. And actually, there's a very good scene where she is basically holding onto the hull of the science center, and Gubila swims right over top of her. It's well well composed scene with a couple of different elements mixed together there. Um, the S25 is then rammed by Gubila. This knocks out Arashi, conveniently giving Hayata his opportunity to transform. And again, similar to how the dogfight was now underwater, the fight, the uh, swimming fight between. Uh, Ultraman and Gubila is similar to aerial fights between, say, uh, Ultraman and the Boltons, uh, which makes sense as, uh, you know, uh, Ijima did direct those episodes. So I guess that uh, he kind of figured shoot him the same way, right? Um, but, uh, you know, th- that battle doesn't actually last underwater all that long. Gubila starts drilling and pops up on land of all places. I really, it's very, it's very kind of odd. It's kind of a jump where he's underwater and then suddenly we're popping up out of the land. But I guess it's easier to, to have a more uh, dynamic fight on, on the land than it is anything else. 
Um, as I said, uh, Fuji makes the rescue. I'm still not 100% sure how they managed this. How do they have an airlock to get in and out? It's it's really kind of glossed over in the episode, to be honest. It, she breaks in, she finds them, she gives Captain some air, and all of them are suddenly back on Tortoise and uh, and back to safety. So, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that they made the rescue, but that clearly was not the A plot by this point in the story. By this point in the story, the, the A plot was, uh, was the monster fight. The fight itself is, is pretty good considering Gubila's limited uh, mobility, again, being a quadruped and being an underwater monster. I do like the Ultra Slice. So, an Ultraman throws the Ultra Slice, Gubila catches it on his horn, he actually spins his head around a little bit, and to and it and the slice, it actually, you know, like if you think of you have a rod and like a, a hoop, and if you put the rod through the hoop and you spin the rod, the hoop will you know, run around the the uh, the inside edge of itself around it. That's what it looks like, and then he flings it back. So that was a, that was a nice touch. The chop where he chops off the horn is is really well done because Gubila his main attack is to you know just charge and use his his horn. That's his main attack. And Ultraman just kind of sidesteps him, chop, and that's it. The horn is gone, and you can see Gubila is hurting at that point. So it's just down to uh, Specium Beam, and that's the end of Gubila. Uh, once we're back, once Gabila is defeated, I should say, we go back onto the S-25 and Arashi wakes up and he looks around and is like, where's Hayata? Where's Hayata? And Hayata is driving and Hayata says, everything's okay. Arashi is like, oh, okay, that's good. And then Arashi is like, wait, what, what happened? So <laughs> we kind of end with, uh, kind of the, um, you know, the, the, the upbeat sort of jokey ending where Arashi's like, I missed everything. What's going on? So that was, that was a, uh, a humorous way to end it. Overall, I, I mean, this is a pretty good episode. It's it's not one of the best ones that we've gotten. It's uh, I like the I like the setup with the NRC Science Center and with the the crew being uh, you know with the captain and Hoshino and the civilians being trapped. But it's you know it's it's not it's not overly exciting. It's not overly creative. It's a good standard episode, but it's not one of the best. Gubila is I said an interesting monster. He shows up a few times, but he is not one of the most popular, and I think there's a good reason for that. He is, uh, as I said, he's, he's a good monster, and I like undersea monsters, but he is, um, you know, there are other monsters that, uh, that are obviously more popular and, uh, and give a, give a better fight and a better showing for themselves as well. But overall, a good episode, certainly not, uh, not a bad one, and, uh, certainly has a, a high action quotient, and I do like all the new models and, uh, you know, that we get, both the Undersea Science Center, and we get to see S25, and like I said, we get to see Tortoise as well. So, pretty good episode overall. Uh, as like, as with all episodes of Ultraman, this is available on Blu-ray from Mill Creek. There's both a, a regular release and a steelbook, and you can also uh, get this digitally on Mill Creek's digital streaming service, which is Movie Spray. And of course, if you buy one of their Blu-ray box sets, you get the whole season digital for free as well. So you can check it out there. All right, we're going to take a uh, quick break, and we'll be back with the second episode of Ultraman right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman will be right back after these messages. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Or maybe... Dragon Slay! How about... Or... In the year 1999, an abandoned alien battle fortress crash-landed on the planet Earth. Our most brilliant scientists and engineers spent the next 10 years reconstructing the damaged ship and studying its highly advanced space technology called Robotech. Do you remember... Our star blazer! 
Or this? The year is after Colony 195. As the world constantly changes in the chaotic era, there are two mobile suits that could turn humans into the ultimate weapon. The Wing Zero and the Epion. Or maybe even this. After the desire for blood pools all, the only hope left is the one they call D. Or this. Gene, grappler ships dead ahead! It wouldn't be fun otherwise. Let's do it! Or... If Cardus is allowed to be reborn, she'll destroy Marmo as well as Lodos. Or have you seen the latest episode of... And just like that, everything changed. At that terrible moment, in our hearts, we knew... Home was a pen. Humanity... If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out Anime Freaks, hosted by Dr. Bill Robinson and me, Gene Hendricks. Anime Freaks is a monthly podcast covering all things anime. It is available at 2TrueFreaks.com and on iTunes under 2TrueFreaks Presents Anime Freaks. Now, back to Ultraman. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman, episode 25, Mystery Comet Seafone, first aired on January 1st, 1967 on Tokyo Broadcast System, per ultra.wikia.com. Again, I'm uh, willing to accept that it aired on New Year's Day. Our director was Toshiro Ijima again. The writer is Bunzo Wakatsuki. And uh, he actually is going to be the writer on the next two episodes, which is The Prince of Monsters. And then he would go on to write uh, in- installments of several other Ultra and Subaraya series going forward, although he didn't get quite as many credits on this series. And our effects are, again, by Koichi Takano. The subtitle of the episode is Featuring Gigas, Duraco, and Red King. And our summary for this episode actually comes from Ultra.Wikia.com. When the giant comet Siphon is headed towards Earth, the Science Patrol Division in Paris discovers that its cosmic rays might set off unprotected hydrogen bombs. Japan's Science Patrol sent members Hayata, Arashi, and Ide to search for six missing hydrogen bombs in the Alps. Shortly after the men arrived in the Alps, the comet Siphon had already passed over the Earth, but its presence disturbed the monster Gigas, and then, the, then later appeared the space monster Duraka. Still searching for the missing bombs, the Science Patrol found another generation of the monster Red King, who had eaten the missing hydrogen bombs and had them uh, in, in his neck. Red King found the two other monsters locked in combat and decided to join. Both he and Gigas ganged up on Duraco and beat the kaiju mercilessly. Red King viciously tore Duraco's wings off and Duraco died of its injuries soon afterwards. Gigas was driven off by Red King, and then fell victim to the extreme drought bomb deployed by the Science Patrol. Hayata changes to Ultraman and paralyzes Red King, raising it off the ground with ultra-telekinesis, with ultra then used two of his ultra-slashes to slice Red King into thirds. Ultraman then took the head and neck portion and flew away into space, allowing the H-bombs to detonate harmlessly. This is a this episode is kind of crazy. It's got like I said three different monsters in it. A lot of action, a lot of kaiju fighting. If if this you're a kaiju ultra kaiju fan, this is a good episode for you. So, 
Let's get right into the notes. Right up front, Dr. Iwamoto is there, and Dr. Iwamoto, of course, played by Akihiko Harada, best known to Daikaiju fans as Dr. Serizawa in the original Godzilla from 1954. Always great to see uh, Dr. Iwamoto, and uh, of course, always great to see Akihiko Harada, so I do like that. He has one of the greatest lines ever when they're talking about what could happen if Sifon hits the Earth. He goes, in the worst-case scenario... Earth will be vaporized. It's like, that seems like a pretty worst-case scenario to me, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't know that you get much uh, much worse off than, than Earth being vaporized. Uh, right after that, we get uh, uh, Fuji serving coffee. And this is played kind of for laughs, that she serves coffee, but she has put salt in the captain's coffee. And I don't know, after, after the last episode where she was... You know, uh, not only the the pilot on the S-25, but also was, you know, the one putting herself out there to rescue everyone that was trapped and, you know, beating herself up over what she thought was her mistake. This seems kind of like a step backwards to have her serving coffee. But, you know, hey, that, there's different writers. You get slightly different takes on the characters. That's, and that's kind of what you, what you have to deal with with a show of this vintage. There's a nice little bit where they talk about the six lost H-bombs and how they were disposed of underwater, but now they have, um, they, they, they were never, oh, they were lost at sea, and now they can't keep track of them, and how the, uh, the claw, there are claw marks on the storage facility underwater. I thought that was neat. That's, even though we don't see it, that's a great visual, isn't it? The, the storage container clawed open by Red King, who does have really big claws, so I thought that was nice. Continuing in the uh, the great trend of E-Day having ridiculous devices for just what they need, he actually has developed an H-bomb detector. And it's it really seems like that you would want to know where your H-bombs are, you know, that since nuclear material is controlled, even in the 1960s, but at the same time, it presents itself exactly what we need here, right? If you lose one... You need some kind of way to track it. And so E-Day, once again, has the scientific know-how to uh, to save the day. Uh, so Ide, Arashi, and Hayata are sent out to the Alps in hunting for uh, for these bombs. And there's some great bits here, some really nice scenery. The location in the Japanese Alps, some really beautiful snowy scenes. There's a lot of really nice bits of the of the uh, agents walking around in, in, in areas that are just completely untouched. There's no other footprints you can see, so they did a really good job of blocking those together and laying them out so that you couldn't see any evidence of the crew or any of the filming or anything like that. Uh, you know, just It just literally looks like we're just happening to see the science patrol making their way in this, uh, you know, freshly snowed area. It's very neat. And I, again, anytime you can use a location, it always adds that era, excuse me, that aura of realism, right? Because it's a real location. You know, Jay talks about this all the time over on Bots, Bugs, and Babes. If you can use a real location, it's always going to look authentic. And so here, when they're in the Japanese Alps, it really does. Uh, it, it, it's really obviously authentic, but it's also a really nice change of pace. Now, this leads us to the appearance of the first monster, Gigas. And Gigas, I, I like him in concept, but uh, he his design is a little wacky. He's, he's kind of like a yeti is what he looks like, right? But he instead of having fur, all of his fur is like molded on. So it almost looks like he's just kind of like fur shaped and snow colored rather than having white fur. They would do a much better version of this type of monster uh, later on in the series with the monster Wu. 
But Gigas is still pretty neat. He has a really good personality. He's definitely a wild beast. He's very excitable and uh, savage. So I, I think he's a cool monster, even if his design is is a little falls a little bit short of the mark. He's still pretty memorable looking. I don't really remember if he ever shows up again, to be honest. Now, the second monster, the space monster Duraco, he does show up again, and he is a much better executed monster. In a lot of ways, in my mind, Duraco is sort of like the prototype version of Gigan from the Godzilla series. First off, he's a space monster. He's got like claws and like hooked claws for hands like Gigan does. He's got pointy feet like Gigan does. He's got kind of an elongated face like Gigan does. And he also has little wings that pop up. You know, Gigan has the three wings on his back that allow him to fly. Well, Duraco also has the wings. So I'm not, whether there was any connection or not to me, they both play on the same sort of inspiration as a, a space monster that has this sort of unique angular look with the hooks for hands and the wings. It also is not, um, it's it not helped at all by the fact that when uh, Duraco is flying, he does have like a flying sound like Gigan does as most space monsters do when they fly. So that was, that really amused me that the, even back in 1966, Ultra was doing the similar to, cause at that point King Ghidorah had already done that over and, um, at Toho he had had a flying sound as a space monster. So Duraco has to do the same. So that was nice. We get to see another bit of uh, uh, science patrol technology as, uh, the Mars 133 gun is deployed out of the jet VTOLs. They take a couple pot shots as Gigas and Duraco fight. I do like the fight between Gigas and Duraco again. Earth monster versus space monster. Gotta love that. Now, the real star of the episode is Red King. And Red King, of course, one of the most popular Ultra Kaiju. Appears numerous times and uh, usually pops up in, in a lot of revivals as well. There's a really nice bit. He's introduced by breaking out of a mountain. And it's reminiscent of similar scenes like Rodan does this in... Um, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. There's other situations of, of monsters breaking out of mountains or volcanoes. But on Ultra, it's um, an Ultraman series. It's it's not seen as much. I guess it's a little bit more uh, costly and complex. But it's very nicely done here. And Red King, he bursts out of there. And he is itching for a fight. Red King has always been such a characterful monster. And that continues here. This great scene where he looks and he sees Gigas and Duraco fighting. And Red King is, he's clearly enthused because he actually cracks his knuckles and gets ready to go in there and mix it up. Red King loves to fight. That's pretty much his whole personality. But for a monster, that's a lot of personality. And jump in there he does, getting right into the fray. Ripping Duraco's wings off and hitting him with it, which is... I mean, that's just adding insult to injury, isn't it? I mean, we immediately get a Earth Monsters versus Space Monsters sort of fight, as one would expect. Uh, even Earth Monsters that don't normally, you know, like each other are not going not gonna to really stand around and let a Space Monster show up. So I thought that was, that was pretty funny. Um, but again, it, it's great to see this big monster mash with all these monsters. It's not common that we get, you know, three giant monsters. That we get three kaiju on an Ultra episode, Ultraman episode. And here we do. And they're, they're three pretty good ones, I think. Again, uh, Gigas not as well realized as Duraco and Red King. But all three of them look really good together. And Duraco and Red King are, are two of the best. Back at Science Patrol Base, uh, they're reporting back to the captain. And we get a great line of, they said, well, we're just going to let him fight. And the captain's like, listen, letting a monster fight with bombs in it is dangerous. You gotta love it. You know, as if we didn't know any better, we we need to be informed of this and and be told that no, we really shouldn't do that. Don't let monsters fight that have swallowed hydrogen bombs. Please, please don't do that. 
The monsters, of course, are still fighting. You know, Red King has always had sort of a, a pro wrestle, a Japanese pro wrestling vibe to him. And that really is driven home here as he knocks down Duraco and puts him in a modified Boston Crab. And by this, I mean, he lays, he knocks him down so that Duraco is laying on his stomach and he gra- he squats over him and pulls on his tail. So he does like a tail crab instead of a single leg crab, but it's a Boston Crab. That's what he puts him in. That, that, that amuses me every single time I see it. <laughs> Just the idea of putting him in that. And he really does. I mean, he fights with like chokes and holds and uh, brawling. He does look kind of like a pro wrestler. Now, after Draco gets out of the crab, he's just standing there and he collapses while he, but right before he collapses from his injuries, Gigas and Red King do like a double body attack where they both charge at him to squash him and Draco falls over. And so they run into each other. And so that means that now they're fighting each other. They were just, you know, teaming up on Duraco, and now they're fighting against each other because that's what these monsters want to do. They just want to fight. You know, that's sometimes, you know, sometimes monsters have other motivations. Sometimes they just want to be monsters and fight, and this one certainly falls into the latter. Now, Hayata has been uh, working around on the mountains trying to uh, to get a good shot at the monsters so that the other guys can get out of there. And, um, you know, he is spotted and he gets knocked off the mountain and it's clearly a dummy. It's, it's one of these great movie TV show dummies that's just falling and the limbs are going everywhere. You know, it's, uh, that, that is a, that is just a traditional thing that no matter, I mean, only until relatively recently did you have dummies that actually fell sort of like humans and not just, you know, like obvious dummies, but this one's clearly a dummy and it's, it's great. It transforms in midair and turns into Ultraman. Um, the fight between... Ultraman and Red King is a definite contrast of styles. It appears to be Judo versus Puroresa, right? And that that is perfect. And, you know, there's, there's a great Judo throw at one point from Ultraman where he throws uh, Red King over his shoulder. Red King puts him in a Katahajime, which is actually a Judo choke, but, but is much more known now from its pro wrestling connections. It looks like Katahajime. It could also be kind of a chicken wing because his arm does kind of slip around there at one point. But they're definitely just throwing each other and grappling back and forth. And it's, it's really a nice fight. And again, it's always, always a treat to get a, one of the most popular monsters. And Red King certainly fits that description. Now, while that is going on, we get a second action sequence here with uh, Ide and Arashi hunting down Gigas with the Jed VTOL. And uh, Ide has another weapon. He has, in, in the subtitle... On the Mill Creek release, it is called the Powerful Drying Missile. And we heard on the in the synopsis that on Ultra Wikia they call it the uh, the extreme drought bomb. Basically it's a it's a bomb that's gonna dry out whatever it hits, right? And so they shoot Gigas with it, and Gigas explodes. So it's like nice. It's not often that a monster gets killed by the science patrol, but Ide's technology came to came to, to play that day and got it, the job done. So I thought that was nice that, you know, we get three monsters, but Ultraman only uh, defeats one of them. You know, the uh, Duraco is, is killed by the other two monsters, the science patrol defeats Gigas, and then uh, Ultraman defeats Red King. Speaking of which, the actual battle between Ultraman and Red King is, uh, after the Gigas scene is, is fairly short, it kind of plays out, but I do like that we do get a lot of different techniques, because he can't just use the Spacium Beam, and they make a point of that, that if Ultraman uses the Spacium Beam, he could explode Red King, and it would cause a, 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 a mega-sized nuclear explosion if six uh, H-bombs go off. So we get some other techniques. We get the ultra le- levitation, 
where he uses telekinesis to levitate him. And then, you know, we see the Ultra Slash again. So we get Ultra Slash in two episodes in a row where he uses it to slice him into bits. And it's always funny when a monster gets sliced into bits. It's always funny to me, like when he cut Bolton in half way, you know, a few episodes back. Uh, but just the, he uses it and cuts him into bits and grabs Red King's head because the bombs are lodged in his neck where he swallowed them. And then flies off into space and we get the report that there was an explosion in space and it was harmless. I mean, but the visual of Red King being sliced into into three pieces, it would be gruesome. And similar scenes of like Ultra 7 using his eye slugger to, to cut monsters were played more for gruesome. But here, it's it's so bloodless and ridiculous it's almost it's 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 just amusing it's almost comical but it's really really charming and really nicely done and and i definitely got a pop out of watching ultraman cut up red king like this so with the bombs disposed and the comet safely passed on everything seems okay except dr iwamoto has doing some calculations and he says july 2nd 3026 that's when seafone will return that it will go to the far end of the universe and um, and from some type of gravity chicanery, turn around and come back, and then it will hit the Earth at that point. And, you know, everyone seems a little down, except the captain, who says that he has faith in humanity that they will develop new technologies by that point, that when Seafone does return, they will be able to save themselves, and that they won't have the same weapons of war that they have the last time and that uh, they won't worry about the bombs exploding. So I do like uh, that even though Iwamoto presents the, the raw science, he goes, here's the facts. The fact is, is that this comet will return, you know, uh, a thousand plus years from now. The cap is uh, hopeful, you know, that this hasn't, um, you know, usually the, the captain is, is hopeful about the future. And but there's been times where I'm thinking like the Gavadon episode where he was concerned. It's like, well, how do you put a limit on the imagination of children? But here he is uh, a stated... Uh, a very kind of Showa Japanese attitude, I would say, about, um, you know, moving forward away from war, embracing peace and cooperation. I, so that, that ending, I thought, put a nice little bow on the episode. Overall, th- this episode is an absolute hoot. I mean, all the different monsters, the great location shooting, the, the action, the, you know, the different ultra techniques, the science patrol getting involved in the monster action. This is a, a really superlative episode, and it's, it's one of my, uh, one of my favorites for sure. I've always liked the fact that we get three monsters, and three monsters that are pretty cool. Like I said, uh, Gigas, not quite to the level of Red King and Duraco, but still a cool monster in his own right. So three monsters in one episode, that's pretty good bang for your buck where I come from, and you're normally used to just getting one monster. Uh, so definitely worth checking out. Again, if you want to watch this episode, you can pick up the Mill Creek Blu-ray sets. You can also check it out on moviespree.com. You can buy the set digitally. And of course, if you get the Blu-ray sets, you get those uh, digital copies for free as well. Uh, I am um, I, I was just tickled with this one. This one always was a, has been a favorite of mine ever since I first saw it uh, years back. So what do you think, folks? Uh, have you seen either of these episodes, both of these episodes? Uh, do you like Gubila? Do you like Red King or Duraco or Gigas? Uh, did you enjoy them? Not so much. Did they work for you? Uh, send me an email, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I would love to talk about these episodes uh, here on the show, and I love getting feedback from the listeners, so please reach out. I would love to hear from you. All right, I think that just about covers our two episodes of Ultraman, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to wrap up the show with some listener feedback here on Earth Destruction Directive. You like cheap comic books, right? 
Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Okay, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Now it is time for a little bit of... Listener feedback, and if you would like to be part of the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also reach me on Facebook and Twitter, and all that information will be in the outro to the show, so let's get right into it. Our first email comes from loyal listener Jack Bond. It is entitled Super Gamera Monster. Uh, Jack writes, I've seen this movie. There's a lot to like in it. The spaceship. Perhaps because it is so much like the Star Destroyer, but I think it's really cool. And it's filmed in good focus to show off the detailing put into it. And, and, okay, not a lot to like. There's an art to editing stock footage into a movie. Not a very respected art. Maybe not a very respectable art. It seems to me that up until now, footage from previous Gamera films had been used as a quick review of those films. Had any been used in a Toho manner of quick and cheap shots of extra destruction? Now they, now they are building a series of monster attacks out of what were originally was, well, a series of monster attacks, but, but unconnected. An early Godzilla Final Wars, no doubt aiming for destroy all monsters, but I doubt even an editing super genius could use this footage to give the impression that the monsters are ganging up. Uh, to answer your question, Jack, the main one that just brings to mind is Gamma vs. Virus, which uses whole scenes of Gamera, um, Gamera on uh, fighting other monsters, and Gamera on on rampages, uh, to pad that film out and and make new scenes. So part of it is with the Virens looking into Gamera's brain and reading the history of how to beat him by looking at the monsters he's fought, and then also footage of the original when they mind control Gamera and have him attack, kind of like is done here with the with the footage, although it's just black and white in that one. Uh, it's 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 better done, but it's still not particularly well done, to be honest. Jack continues, I let the story wash over me, so miss the thought that it was all a dream or something by Keiichi. Speaking of dreams, I saw the Galaxy Express 999 compilation movie back in the sci-fi channel days. I liked the quest nature of it, but in that form, speaking of editing, it was too linear from A to B to C, as if sidetrack stories had been cut away. No pun unintended. <laughs> I like that. I, I can get behind intended puns. Uh, there, there's a, this is just jumping in. There is, I saw, it was at the used bookstore the other day, and they had a canvas bag. It says, I prefer my puns intentional. Jack continues, I can see a movie of this vintage leaving the question unanswered, but not being so subtle about, not being so subtle about even raising it. A kid assigning a secret identity to a kind pet shop owner and giving them special vehicles, quote, disguised as cars and vans. <clears throat> cars and vans with synthesize their keyboards in the dashboard. That's the major clue. That's Keiichi's interest, not a Japanese auto trend. Honda had been making a cord model since 1976, but that's something different. Then there's this interpretation of Kirugi. Keiichi is living with his still young mother and no sign of a father when another woman is hanging around for no apparent reason. He senses ulterior motives and are trying to befriend him. 
possibly even feelings of antagonism or resentment. When there is a turnaround of these feelings, the mother is ready to suggest that she might become part of their family. Giruji's death is a child's explanation of her being gone and no longer discussed. He is unaware of the adult's decision not to see each other anymore. You can see why this, quote, real-world story as separate from the monster movie would be edited out. I take it as a sign that I've been thinking too much about this movie. Uh, Jack, that is... Uh, when I got your email, I got this last month, and I, I mentioned in the last episode that I, I didn't want to cover this email just because I wanted to give it some room to breathe. That's a brilliant interpretation of this, that it really does build on kind of the idea that this is Okaichi's uh, dream, and that this is him kind of filling in the gaps in his life, and that none of this is actually real. Uh, but as far as with uh, Girugi, that is... Now, admittedly, it's 1980 in Japan, and that might be a little risque, but I can see that. I mean, it's not a, not an unreasonable reading of the film, given the limited information that we are given in the film. So, I mean, I've certainly seen, uh, especially in the Daikaiju realm, uh, bigger stretches. Uh, again, I, I don't think that was the intention, but it's certainly a fascinating reading, and I'm, I'm on board with, with what you've got here. And I think that does make the film not particularly better, but maybe make a little bit more sense, at least in some of the non-monster sequences. Jack continues, In other news, I found I'm not a Gamera fan, at least not to the extent of buying a special edition box set. Well, not ordering a special edition box set. I might have had a moment of weakness if I'd held one in my hand. Among my other DVDs, I found I have Gamera the Invincible, Attack of the Monsters, and Destroy All Planets. Watch them and... Okay, I think I can wait for the other movies to come to me instead of seeking them out. But anything I do watch, I will listen to what you have to say about them. So thanks for the show, Jack. Jack, thank you very much for, for that. And you know, the thing about Gamera is that, especially the Showa films, I think it really depends on when you were exposed to them. If, if you first saw them as a kid, and a lot of them I did first see as a kid you're more willing to be forgiving of them, I think, some of their flaws, because they do have a certain childlike sense of wonder about them, and a lot of the later ones, of course, do star children. So you're not quite as harsh on them. If you come to them as an adult, you've got to be a really, really forgiving Daikaiju fan, I think, to come to these as an adult and really appreciate them in the same way that one who came to them as a child might. And I'm not saying you can't. I'm sure there are. Uh, I, I My experience was that I saw most of them as a kid. Or at least a young adult. And uh, I know some of them I saw for the first time, I want to say, on, on Mystery Science Theater 3000. So I want to say um, uh, Gamera versus Gauss I first saw on... Not Gauss. Gamera versus Guerin I first saw on Mystery Science Theater 3000. So it's like, okay, that, that always is going to color it in a more positive way for me. So it's hard to say. But, you know, the thing about Gamera is that, you know, like I said, the, the he he's like Godzilla, right? He, he is a monster that's been around for a long time. So he has certain aspects of him that are lasting and certain ones that don't and all aspects of him are valid just like any long-running character you know I, I often have compared Godzilla to like Tarzan or Dracula Gamera is kind of the same way maybe not to that extent the of being crossing over into that iconic level but there are certain aspects of it and you know whether whether one series of film or one particular film works or doesn't work for you really comes down to the individual viewer and i can i can totally buy that that said that arrow box set is really nice it is really nice um you might be 
and just from our interaction on the show, you might be more interested in the the Heisei films, the later Gamera films, which Arrow, uh, we talked about last month, is doing the the two box sets, a Showa box set and a Heisei box set. That Heisei box set may be more up your alley. So, Jack, thank you very much for writing in. Really did appreciate your thoughts on Super Monster Gamera. Now, Jack also wrote me a very quick email about Godzilla and Hell. And here's what Jack had to say about that. It says, Hell is the absence of Godzilla. Not much to say about Godzilla and Hell, because I haven't read it, but listening to your description, one thing I have to say is, Mighty Mothra Power Angels! Jack, thank you. I've had that stuck in my head since I got the email, so thank you for that. Yeah, but no, yeah, seriously, that pretty much is Mothra Angels, right? So Mighty... Mighty Mothra Power Angels. I'm right. I'm right there with you, man. Thank you very much. That was uh, that that brought a big smile to my face. So very much appreciated. All right, we have one more email. This one comes from a good friend of the show, Professor Alan Middleton, over at the Quarterbin Podcast, part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. And uh, Professor writes Godzilla down under, like way down under, regarding Godzilla in hell. And the Professor writes. Luke, I enjoyed your review and description of Godzilla in Hell, and thanks for pointing out to me that it was on Hoopla. That gave me a chance to read it beforehand and follow along with your analysis. I knew that I missed stuff, not having the depth of history with Godzilla that you have. I mostly let my eyes move more quickly over those wordless pages than you did. Thanks for adding context to a very interesting and striking series. My favorite issue was number two with the lovely prose narration. That was the Bob Eggleton issue. Uh, Alan continues, keep up the good work and keep them stomping. Professor Alan, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network and Dorkness to Light Podcast. Alan, thank you very much for writing in. Definitely uh, agree, a very striking series. And I'm glad it's on Hoopa for other listeners to be able to check that out because it doesn't take long. Like you say, because most of it's wordless, you can blow through that pretty quick. Uh, but I hope if you do read it on Hoopla that you either do the smart view, the panel view, like if you're reading on your phone, or maybe on an iPad or, an, or a, I've got a Fire tablet so that you can see the art and, and really appreciate the art because the art is really what drives that series and uh, to me is, is the real selling point for it. Thank you very much for writing in. I really appreciate hearing from this. Darkness to Light, for those that may not know, deals with nerd-related topics and religion. It's the intersection of, of religion and like geekery. So Godzilla in Hell is actually a, a perfect fit for uh, someone who is one of the co-hosts of, uh, of Darkness to Light, the podcast. So thank you very much, Alan, for writing in. Uh, social media likes, shares, and retweets for that last episode came from uh, Doc Strange, a.k.a. Billy D., Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army, Nathan Marchand, and Jimmy from NASA. Together they are the Monster Island Film Vault. Two True Freaks, Bro Rad, Dorky Geeky Nerdy Trivia Podcast, Siskoid, History of Comics on Film, My Brother Jason Giaconetti, Adam Tebow, John Vanover, Chuck Rodriguez, Professor Allen himself, Derek William Crabb, Derek WC, Woolly Lacomas, a.k.a. Mr. Lomax, Burma Gaynor, Robert Ward, Christopher J. Warden, David Bland, Brian Severe, and ladies and gentlemen, my mother liked my podcast on Facebook. Uh, you guys might have a more popular show, but my mom says I have a good podcast. So thank you, mom. Very much appreciated, mom. Did watch Godzilla movies with me when I was a kid. She she tolerated them more than uh, than a lot of moms probably would. So thank you uh, for that, and uh, thank you for the like on Facebook, mom. I'm sure your other friends are very confused by that, uh, considering my handle on Facebook is Luke Ed and not Luke Jacanetti. Why you're liking some random Godzilla in 
Hell podcast. But thank you very much, Mom. Much appreciated. All right. So uh, we now come to the end of another episode. And, you know, the an end is only just a beginning, right? With one thing ends, another thing begins, in the words of the Master. When one door closes, another must open. So what are we covering next time? Well, for our next episode, we are going back to the Godzilla series and back to the film series and back to the Showa era. And the next film in line in that is Godzilla vs. Gigan. And uh, I'm going to have a guest on. I'm not going to not gonna drop who it is. want to be a little bit of a surprise. Uh, very eager to, to record with this guest. Uh, we've talked a lot online and, and done some work together before and had a lot of fun so uh, hopefully um, we'll have no problems getting everything lined up for Godzilla vs. Gigan uh, a film that to me and I'll talk about this on the episode but is always tied with Christmas time uh, because I first got the film on VHS as a Christmas gift so I always kind of associate it with the month of December and the end of the year uh, even though there's nothing particularly uh, wintry about the film. In fact, it's more of a summer film when you get right down to it. But but that'll be for next time, so please come back and check that out. Uh, I'd also like at this time to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show. I very much appreciate uh, every every like, every uh, share, every retweet. It helps get words out about the show, and I appreciate your patronage. Uh, this show, as I said, always is a labor of love. And uh, if I can bring a little bit of uh, happiness or joy uh, to your day by listening to me go on about giant monsters, then then, then I'm doing my, my job and I'm doing it well. Uh, I'd also like to take a moment to say that uh, Earth Destruction Directive is for everyone. All are welcome here. If you are interested in Japanese giant monsters, if any version of Godzilla, Gamera, Ultraman, the Shogun Warriors, any of that has brought you happiness in your life, then you are welcome here. Uh, this, this show is for everybody, and I really do mean that. Uh, and, and again, you know, all are welcome to, to feedback and be, uh, be to interact with the show as, as they feel comfortable doing. So, uh, again, thank you everyone for downloading and listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode where we took a look at a couple of classic Ultraman episodes. Please send some feedback if you are uh, would like to feedback to the show. You can, again, Directive at yahoo.com. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. Just send me some messages, and we'll talk about them here on the show. Please come back next time for Godzilla vs. Gigan. Very much looking forward to that one. And until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E.
any. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to 2TrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.